You are listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Today we are discussing the science of genetic testing for cancer risk using the BRCA genetic mutations. In this segment, we will focus on the clinical background of BRCA mutations. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am your host, Dr. Michael Benson, a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Northwestern University in Chicago. With me today is Dr. Gregory Critchfield, a board-certified pathologist who is president of Myriad Genetic Laboratories. Myriad is a biotechnology company that has brought BRCA genetic testing to the clinical marketplace. Welcome, Dr. Critchfield. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Dr. Benson. It's a pleasure to be here. On this segment, we're going to talk about some of the more clinically relevant aspects of the BRCA mutations. And, of course, the first question that comes to mind is, what is the mutation carrier frequency for the BRCA1 and 2 mutations? In the United States, the estimate is that somewhere near 1 in 500 people have a mutation in either BRCA1 or BRCA2. In some ethnic populations, the, the frequency can be higher. For example, individuals of Ashkenazi Jewish and, uh, descent can have a, a 140 chance of having a mutation in BRCA1 or BRCA2. Are there any uh, ethnic groups with uh, the same good luck? There are a few. The Dutch seem to have a very high rate of, of a couple of mutations. We don't see those very often in the United States, but in Holland it is a, it is a much higher frequency than one would expect in the general population. And these specific ethnic groups, why do they have a tenfold higher genetic mutation frequency? It's thought that the, the mutations arose some time ago in a, uh, in a small founder, what's called a founder population. This, this would be a small number of individuals that carried this initially as the ethnic group expanded in size. And then because there was a, a beginning point, if you will, for that ethnic group, uh, the transmission across generations led to a higher frequency in that group. For uh, clinicians in our audience who don't know the difference between Ashkenazi and Sephardic Jews, can you give them a little bit of a description? Ashkenazi uh, Jewish individuals are mostly of Central European uh, descent, and in the United States, the, the great majority of individuals uh, would be would be of Ashkenazi descent. How are the genes inherited? These genes are inherited uh, by passing mutations down from generation to generation. The the mutations can come from either side of the family, from the father's side or the mother's side. The offspring of an individual who has a mutation has approximately a 50% chance of getting that mutation. The challenge is, once you've identified a mutation in a family, you would want to test other people to see if they are carriers of the mutation. Well, the thing that I was wondering about is you're talking really about a heterozygous carrier status. So if, if they're heterozygous, who cares? In, in many diseases, that's the case. But in this case, it is a dominant inheritance. So e even a heterozygote, because it's in inherited in a dominant fashion, they have a very high risk of having cancer in the future as a result of inheriting that mutation. There may be no answer to this question, but does that mean that you need 100% of the protein that these genes are coding for, and that if you only have 50%, you have an increased risk in cancer, or does the absence of two functioning genes prevent the protein from being produced at all? A very, very good question. Every gene in the body would inherit a mutation, a gene with a mutation from one of the parents in, in a person that has a, a mutation. So every single gene has this. What happens is there may be environmental insult in a particular cell to the other gene that is normal. And when that happens, then there is nothing, there's no backstop or it's like a car that has lost all of its brakes at that point. There is no effective 
a housekeeping function from the BRCA genes because they've both been knocked out, one by inheritance and one by environmental insult. So environmental insults are frequent enough to really uh, affect our DNA. Well, if you think about it, the number, the number of cells in the human body is measured in, in, on the order of trillions. As a result, then, a single insult could, in fact, affect one of these cells because most people do not have the BRCA mutations in their genes. The repair that occurs is, is taken care of by the reserve that each cell has. In a cell that is already down one copy of, of, of a normal BRCA gene, then uh, hitting the other BRCA gene abrogates that, that function. And from that point on, there, there's a much greater risk of the cell becoming cancerous. Well, I, I'd like to clarify for the audience what we're talking about. We need to make a big distinction when talking about risk of disease. And one is lifetime risk, which is frequently given for cancer, and then a relative risk or increased risk. Why don't you explain to the audience the idea that the issue about risk for those who have a BRCA1 or 2 mutation? A woman born with a BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutation has a, a highly elevated risk of having breast or ovarian cancer during her lifetime. To give you some idea, the risk at age 50 approaches 50%, and that's very high compared to the general population where the risk of breast and ovarian cancer is somewhere on the order of 2% or less. So it's a 25-fold increase by that age. Uh, the lifetime risk uh, can be as high as, as 87% for breast cancer and as high as 54% for ovarian cancer. So these are very high risks. In contrast for our audience, my general understanding of lifetime risk for ovarian cancer is 1%, and uh, for breast cancer is perhaps 9% lifetime risk. So this is not an 87% increase in risk. This is actually order, this is many, many-fold increased risk. Yes, it is. How do you know when someone is at high risk for having uh, this hereditary breast or ovarian cancer syndrome? The way that we do this is not to test everybody, but to look at individuals that have a particular pattern that might suggest a hereditary situation. For example, a woman who has breast cancer below the age of 50, that is unusual. And so that is a tip-off that this woman might be a candidate for, uh, for the, a genetic test. A woman who is of Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry who has breast cancer. A woman with ovarian cancer. A woman who belongs to a family where there are cases of breast and or ovarian cancer. All of these things tend to indicate that if, if they're on one side of the family, that there is a hereditary pattern occurring here and that we need to look into it and see whether there is a mutation present. If you have just joined us, you are listening to Reach MD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Benson, and my guest is Dr. Gregory Critchfield, president of Myriad Genetic Laboratories. Today we are discussing the science of genetic testing for cancer risk using the BRCA genetic mutations. This segment has been focusing on the clinical background of BRCA mutations. And what are the AMA red flags to guide practitioners to identifying high-risk patients? The AMA has published a monograph um, that was put together by 10 professional societies, uh, societies that are involved in the care of women that would be at risk for, for, for having hereditary breast cancer. The AMA red flags are a series of points that one would look for to see whether an individual was at high risk for breast or ovarian cancer. Uh, one of them is age less than 50 and having cancer below that age. Another is having a case of ovarian cancer in the family. Another is, ha is being of Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry. I think it, uh, for a practical matter, as a practicing clinician, this idea of family history needs to be defined a little bit further. 
How far back or how far out are we talking about a family history of ovarian cancer? We're talking about uh, certainly in a first-degree relative or a second-degree relative. A first-degree relative would be a father or mother of an individual or the offspring of an individual. What about a sibling? Sibling is also a fir- it w- would be considered a first-degree relative as well. And the second-degree relatives would be who? There would be a, an aunt or, or uncle or cousin. A grandparent or not? Grandparent also. I see. But like a great-grandparent with ovarian cancer, first of all, it's almost impossible to know. But that wouldn't count. That probably would not count. Okay, so uh, we have been going over the AMA red flags. I think we were up to three. I- I'm sorry to interrupt, but I thought the family history, uh, you know, was important because, you know, most of our audience are just simply not geneticists. Absolutely. So what were some of the other red flags? One of the other red flags is a case of, of breast cancer in a male. That occurs uh, very infrequently. When it does, the, the rate of, of having a BRCA mutation is higher. Are there any other uh, red flags? Those are the main ones. So most of the population doesn't really uh, come under the red flag heading. If I understand correctly, that means any Jewish woman at any age with breast or ovarian cancer is, quote-unquote, a red flag? That would be a red flag for the clinician to look into the the possibility of a hereditary syndrome. Are there other hereditary syndromes besides the breast and ovarian cancer syndrome that uh, might be related to BRCA? Oh, these are the main ones. The, the the other one, of course, would be pancreas cancer. Seven percent of all pancreas cancer cases occur as a result of BRCA2 mutations. Are there any pancreas cancer patients that you would necessarily check for, or would a seven percent background rate justify testing of all pancreas cancer patients? That's a question that's been raised. Uh, right now, there are no professional uh, society guidelines that would that would push doctors in that direction. It is a, a question that people are beginning to ask. What are the limitations of BRCA testing? One limitation of the BRCA testing is that not every single gene can be tested for in a, in a laboratory test. We are looking for the major determinants in a hereditary cancer situation. So it is possible for a person to have a negative test and still have a very strong family history and yet not find any mutations in the genes that are tested for. This may be a result of, ha- of having mutations in some genes and some other genes that we are unaware of at present time. Are there other genetic tests that are being developed related to cancer detection, Herceptin uh, receptors or anything else? There are a number of them. They, they differ from the tests that we're talking about, however. What we're talking about is a test that will predict the future likelihood of having cancer. The future likelihood incl- is, is not the likelihood of having recurrent cancer, but it's having a de novo cancer. That's what the tests are that we're talking about. The other tests are, are using genetic markers to assess the tumor biology and then make predictions about what kinds of treatments would be best for the patient. So the BRCA mutations, if that's part of the basis of the development of cancer, may suggest that those patients have a different biology than patients who don't have involvement of the BRCA mutations. Is that correct? That's correct. In fact, there is a clinical trial uh, that, is, that is, has been launched by Johns Hopkins University in the area of pancreas cancer. Because a large number of patients, 7% of all patients with pancreas cancer, have it on the basis of BRCA2 mutations. And because in vitro, tumor cells that lack BRCA2 function are exquisitely sensitive to certain kinds of of chemotherapy agents called cross-linking agents, the clinical trial is designed to ask the question and to answer the question, 
can we give a specific treatment to those patients that will be better than what they're currently getting because of the defect in BRCA2. Couldn't you postulate that the chemotherapy might even be more toxic to people who have an impaired genome? That's a a very good question. And the thought is that there may be enough reserve with the normal copy in the other cells that are not the tumor cells that they would be okay. These are the kinds of things that would have to be answered in clinical trials. Is, Is one going on? Yes, there is one going on currently. What part of the country? This is the the trial at Johns Hopkins University in pancreas cancer. I should mention, though, that there are some European trials looking at the same kinds of things in, in breast cancer patients with BRCA1 and 2 mutations. I have to say, I find this very, very interesting. I want to thank Dr. Gregory Critchfield, president of Myriad Genetic Laboratories, who has been our guest. We have been discussing the science of genetic testing for cancer risk using the BRCA genetic mutations. I am your host, Dr. Michael Benson. You have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions about this program, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.